0: Morning. We're going to look at um, two psalms this morning. We're going to take probably four weeks as a church just to walk through some psalms. Uh, Psalms are uh, a great book in the Old Testament. Uh, Many times we read the psalms and we like the joyful ones. Uh, I don't think there's any book in the Bible that has so many um, uh, laments and pictures of affliction and brokenness and even despair and lack of comfort than the psalms. Uh, It is really an emotional book, but what happens many times as Americans is we read it sort of unemotionally, and we look for easy things we can grasp, but really it's a book that is full of emotion. And so we will uh, look at this psalm, Psalm 9 and 10, Uh, If you've noticed, if you're paying attention already, those are two psalms, 9 and 10. We'll look at them together. Uh, A lot of scholars believe that they should be one psalm um, because of some of their continuity. Also because Psalm 10 does not have a heading. Uh, Psalm 9 does. Uh, Psalm 9 begins with praise, which a lot of psalms do. And then Psalm 10 ends with praise. So you have a bookend of those two things. And it's actually, it's almost a full acrostic in the Hebrew alphabet. So a few letters are missing, and there's a few that are out of order. But uh, the scholars, as they look at that, they see, like, that's a lot of evidence that this could just be one psalm. It's the long opening in the beginning of this psalm, in Psalm 9. uh, It's 12 verses of praise to God. And it really, this whole psalms is wrapped around the idea that we live in two realities. We live in a reality that God is worthy of praise, but we also live in a world that is evil and there's destruction. And this, the, as David writes this psalm, he's uh, drawing us to understand how do you live in these two realities without for, forsaking one and just solely living in the world of the other one. So what I'll do, I know this is long to read, but I want to read this psalm. It's God's word. It's good for our encouragement and correction. And so please listen to um, Psalm 9 and 10. It's a psalm of David. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The the very memory of them has perished. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice. He judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. For those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds, for he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises. That in the gates of the daughter of Zion, I may rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk in the pit that they made. In the net that they hid, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. The wicked shall return to Sheol. All the nations that forget God. The needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail, let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord, let the nations know that they are but men. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boast of the desires of his soul. The one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. For as all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall meet, not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord. O lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, You will not call to account, but you do see. For you know mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you, the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desires of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline their ear to do justice to the fatherless and to the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. Let's pray before we look at this psalm. God, you care for the fatherless and the afflicted and the broken. And so we ask, as we look at these two psalms, that you would remind us of that, not only of our own affliction and brokenness, but the affliction and brokenness of those around us. And thank you that you are God, and that you are good, and you are powerful. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. This psalm begins with uh, five synonyms of praise and thanksgiving. In the first two verses, he says, I will give thanks, I will recount, I will be glad, I will exult, I will sing praise. We read not only of David's devotion here, but his active proclamation of God's righteous work. David's beginning point is God's revealed character. Uh, David's starting point here with this psalm is not David's situation and circumstance. He says, I will recount all of your wonderful de- deeds. David chooses to begin his plea for help with the God who is worthy to be praised. We read here and see that God, what God has done in the past, and so we are free to grieve over the present. We plead with God to act as he has in the past that we can remember God's great work just like David did. And he's reminding us, remember who God is. The act of praising God does not erase the present suffering, but allows you to enter your present reality and your present situation and the situation of those who are close to you and the suffering that is going on in this world, in our country, in our neighborhood allows you to enter that reality boldly because God is ultimately in control. Verses 9 through 10 say, The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. So we have here, we have an understanding that God is a stronghold, that God will provide and care for us and care for you and care for the afflicted and that God meets those who seek him. And what David is doing is he's paving that path and saying, first of all, God is glorious. He is worthy to be sought after. He has a stronghold in times of trouble. And so we get that the God of the Bible is a God who is there, and he is worthy of praise, and he knows. He's not absent. He understands the suffering and affliction that uh, you and I experience personally and as a community, as a church, as uh, a larger community, as a city, and as a nation, as a world. God is there, and he is worthy to be praised, and he knows. This is something we do every Sunday as we We need to remind ourselves of these truths. Uh, So if you haven't grasped that and you've been here for a while, this is what we do every Sunday morning. Uh, First of all, we remind everyone that God is the one who calls us to him first. He is the one who calls us to worship him. God is the great initiator of that. And so if we think we are taking a step to God first that he hasn't made, it's actually a misunderstanding. So even when we respond and we sing to God of his praise and glory, it is our response to the action that he has already taken. God is the one who calls us. And so we hear and we sing words this morning and we recite words and we carry these truths to remind each other that this is why we're here. I always sit in the front row. Not that I'm more spiritual or important. So if I forget something, someone can remind me quickly, and I can get it done. (laughs) Now, really, the reason, one of the reasons I sit in front is because I get to hear all of your voices. And I have Sundays just like you do, where I think I just don't want to sing. I don't want to recite anything. I just want to sit here. But as I hear, I'm reminded that I'm not alone. And we're all here trying to understand more and more who God is, what Jesus has done, and we say together, I believe, help my unbelief. And this is what David is doing by beginning this psalm with, this is who God is, and he is worthy of praise, and he knows, and he's here And so David begins a turning point in this psalm to turn and begin to cry out and to plead for God to act. But we need to remember where David begins, first of all, is with God. If we begin with our own situation, then automatically we have turned things to focus on our own self. And so how do we begin even cries of lament Cries because of the affliction we're under. How do we begin those with understanding who God is? David gives a good example. Begin with God. Verse 12 says, He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. That God does not forget, but the wicked, as we'll see, they forget. This gives some of the insight into the desire for wickedness and evil. Um, When the bookends of life are birth and death, physical birth, physical death, when God is not a factor, the pleas are centered around your material success in life. And we automatically begin to look at our own self first and only instead of realizing that there's a God who knows us, is in control, and he's glorious, and he's worthy of praise. And that also reminds us that there is a forever. And it's not just about the short years of life that we are called to live. Verse 13 begins three pleas of David, three cries that David is asking for God to work amidst the affliction and the brokenness that he sees. And the first one is in verse 13 of chapter 9. Be gracious to me, O Lord. David's first cry and plea to God is for David himself to understand God's graciousness. This shows David and how he understands who God is and how humanity is called to come to God. It is only by God's grace. David does not come with a request for fairness or what one has earned but a proper perspective of God to his creation. And our approach to God is always by his grace, by his invitation, by his way, by what he has provided. And by this plea and cry for grace, David begins to move toward God and understand reconciliation. The second plea is, let not evil prevail, which is in verse 19. We might ask, well, how does evil prevail? Uh, What what happens when we think about evil and wickedness is we're really good about thinking about evil and wickedness that is not in ourselves and our own desire. Evil that is uh, somewhere else. And then we have just this mysterious idea that, why are people evil? I don't understand. Which are, what we're coming from is, I don't know what evil and wickedness is. I don't know what selfishness and arrogance is. That is so foreign to me. That is something that other people have, and I don't know why they have it. But we need to begin to understand, um, evil and wickedness in a grand scheme all over the world begins the same way that your own selfishness begins. In your heart. In your desire. What David does here is he explains three ways that selfishness begins, and evil and wickedness begins. Verses two through four of chapter 10, uh, they describe this: in arrogance. This is where it begins: Grand evil and wickedness and horrible things in this world begins with arrogance. And this is a sin all of us are prone to. And this is what happens when we don't begin things with God and who he is, but we begin things with our own selves. And our responses could be, why me? Why am I afflicted? And the background behind that is, I am such a good person. I should not receive affliction. Affliction should be for the bad people to help them become better people. Instead of understanding, it is your pride, it is your arrogance, and it is mine that begins to eat away at us. What pride and arrogance do is they build a value system that revolves around oneself. And by ignoring God, we put ourselves as the center. We're not made for this. We, we as people can't take the weightiness of, of, of making our own value as people. And so we act like a vacuum. If, if this world is really about me, then really we've created this vacuum. We're going to suck in everything that could give us any kind of value because we have to be able to feed our arrogance and pride. In arrogance, the wicked. Hotly pursue the poor. So what happens? You have this vacuum and you begin to take and steal from people. Either you steal value from them, you, steal, you might steal physical things from them. Because you are trying to, you're trying to fill your own uh, understanding of who you are. And when you've taken God out of the equation, this is how we operate. This desire is to fill self and ignore that we're made for something greater. And so where does wickedness and evil begin? It's the ignoring of God and it's pursuing our own desire uh, that is driven by pride and arrogance. What is the second thing? Longing for selfish prosperity. This is in verse 5. Why did the selfish continue with selfish pursuits? Because it works. Because it works. Like, if you, if you are a selfish person, what's going to stop you from being selfish? Nothing except a complete change in your life. Uh, and selfishness works. It works. Greed, there's a level that selfishness and greed and going after what you want boldly and stealing, there's a level of that that works. If it didn't work, no one would be interested in it. But because we have this vacuum that we see uh, in our pride and arrogance that if I am the most important person and other people somehow don't realize this because of their faulty thinking, then what I'm going to do is I'm going to get everything I can in this world. I'm going to build for myself every pleasure, Material possession, success, relationship, career, I'm going to steal all of those things because I have to fill this void. Seeking after your own prosperity does bring a level of success, but the casualties of this prosperity are more than you could imagine. Why does the workaholic continue to work harder and more? Because it works. Why do they do that? They do that because what they're trying to get with success and their own value, they're starting to receive that. And so what they need is something drastically different. But our thought is, I'm just going to work harder, and that will make it a little better, and I'll be okay. Why does the addict forsake his family? For that moment. For that pleasure, for that addiction, for that success, for that feeling, it works, but it doesn't last. The prosperity that is attained through pride and arrogance and pursuing selfish prosperity will not last. Verse six talks about the security of self. This is the third one. So we have that we're. Um, Evil begins with being self-centered, prideful, arrogant people. It begins for longing for our own selfish prosperity. And then it, begin, it, it, it carries us to, uh, we don't want to be forgotten. We want to be secure. And the verse says, the wicked and arrogant say, I will not be moved. This is what will bring me success. And all people long to have assurance and security, which causes us to seek after anything that could fill us. A relationship, drugs, lifestyle, career, whatever it is. Many of us aren't picky even. We just want to be full. To be valued, to long for prosperity, to feel and know security are not wicked desires, but is where we find these and how they shape us that make them selfish. So we seek after these. The problem is uh, not that we have these desires to understand what gives us value or uh, what does it mean to have a, a full flourishing life. Or to have security. Those aren't wrong things. But the problem is uh, we're content with uh, what this physical world offers. This is the beginning of wickedness and evil. This is where it begins. And you might be someone here today who's just really good at managing your own wickedness and evil. And so you know that you just, you don't let that out to people. You just sort of keep that private. But what happens is, it is inwardly eating and destroying you. There's only one thing that will transform this. It's God's work of redemption. And in redemption in Jesus, we are realigned in these desires so that we can be shaped by what is true and by what is beautiful. And by Jesus' selfish, selfless act of giving his life, we are given value beyond what we deserve. So we don't have to seek after things with our own pride and arrogance because we've been given more value than we could ever imagine. And by Jesus' provision of grace, we enjoy the fullness of joy beyond any earthly prosperity. By Jesus' secure promises, we don't have to claw our way to security and not being forgotten. Because we can know a security that is beyond what any relationship or career or drug or prosperity can offer. So when people pursue their own value, their own prosperity, their own security at the expense of others and at the exclusion of God, this is what's called evil. And so we can We have the opportunity then to be real honest with those pursuits in our own life and not just call evil things that are outside of us and what other people deal with, but begin to see that my own pursuit for my own success, where I step on other people, that's evil. You are oppressing other people. You are causing affliction. These desires are in all of us. The only cure that moves us beyond these is not trying to kill this desire. is actually having a greater desire for a greater, more substantial answer to these questions. Who are you? What do you pursue? And what makes you valuable? So in this, David begins in his three pleas to God. For God to be gracious. His second plea is that evil would not prevail. And we've looked at three characteristics of evil that uh, begin in each of us. And the third plea from David is forget not the afflicted. David cries that God would not forget the afflicted. The wicked see the afflicted as opportunity for their success. Once used up, They're forgotten. The plea is that the afflicted will never be forgotten. It is one thing to read of these pleas to God and maybe even to plea with David for the same work that God would act. But in your plea and in your cry to God that God would not forget the afflicted, do you forget the afflicted? Do you, by the way you have uh, patterned your life, actively stay away from the afflicted because it's too hard? Or do you pursue the afflicted for God's grace to be known to them, for evil to be confronted, and for the afflicted to be cared for and not forgotten? Do you turn these Pleas and cries to real action in your life. Your desire to see God's grace and mercy be known in your neighborhood and in your city, making friends with the afflicted, listening to the hurts of the brokenhearted, and extending grace to the forgotten. Now, will you and I be people that not only cry and plea for God to end? Affliction and to not forget the afflicted. But will you and I be people that actually move toward the afflicted? Or in situations where the afflicted move toward you? I had the great opportunity this week. uh, Someone in our church community asked if I would go with them to meet with a woman who um, is in hospice. and. It's been in for a while, long enough to know that it won't be long. And to sit with this woman and a friend and hear her story and listen to her. And at the end, I asked um, like how we could help. You know, like my you know, my thinking is like, do you need bills paid? Do you need uh, someone to drive you somewhere? Like all these practical things. Uh, So here's this woman who is afflicted, suffering, near death. And she said, I just want someone to sit with me. I just want someone to talk to me. That's what the afflicted need. That's with the oppressed and the broken. It's not what we think sometimes as healthy people who have this long view of life that we have 50 years left, but it's sitting with someone and just saying, I'm going to sit, and I'm going to listen, and we can just talk about anything. It's one thing to cry and plead for, the, for God to meet the afflicted. It's a whole other thing for you and I to carve out time in our day to really sit with the afflicted. We don't have to look far for the afflicted. Uh, I hope God opens our eyes so we can see the afflicted within our community, within your neighborhood. You don't have to drive hours to find someone who is uh, broken and hurt. What we need are eyes to be able to see it. And then that our plea and our cry for God to meet the afflicted, that we would realize, maybe I would actually be the answer to that person's prayer that I would sit with them. In these pleas and cries, we see the suffering of Jesus on our behalf. The just for the unjust, the innocent for the guilty, the perfect for the broken, Jesus for you. In the death and resurrection of Jesus, we are receivers of grace. Evil does not prevail. The afflicted are never forgotten. And we're to be people who remind people of that truth. To know God is to know and experience these pleas and cries and to grow in a desire to actually help the afflicted. And the opposite of pursuing people that are broken like this would be pursuing evil, which would be, God, make me happy, make me wealthy and prosperous, Make me secure in myself. Because deep down, that's really, really, so many times that's what we want. Because it's so much easier and manageable. But it's not what God calls you to. The Bible talks about the righteous and how they are to disadvantage themselves to advantage others. While the wicked are willing to advantage themselves to disadvantage, uh, they're willing to advantage themselves as they disadvantage others. And the only cure for this is to know how Jesus disadvantaged himself for our advantage. Simply, his life for yours. And then David ends this psalm. Where Psalm 9 began, with praise to God, the Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from this land. O Lord, you hear the desires of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and to the oppressed. So the man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. Understanding God and what He has done, and the redemption that we have in Jesus, and the value we're given, and the security we have, means that our life is now movement toward people who are in affliction and brokenness. This is the glorious Christian calling. Will you and I be friends with those who are afflicted? Will we move toward them, not for our own gain, only because? This is what Jesus has done for you. And what we celebrate this morning is the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And as we feast on this table and we're realigned and we're reminded of this great promise that Jesus will not eat of this again until he returns. will you pray with me as we prepare our hearts to come and receive of this meal? Lord Jesus, we are thankful and we pray that you would help us to see how you pursue the oppressed and the afflicted and the broken and that that is us. And we meet, may we be nourished by this meal and we thank you that you meet us here this morning. In Jesus' name, we ask this. Amen.